When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host, and I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from theplaindealerincleveland.com. How you doing, Terry? I am well, David. Cool. I have not seen you since uh, Sunday at the game, so yeah, it's good to get caught up here. And I guess the first thing we should do, you have some more book signings coming up for your new book that's out, The Guy with the Sign and Other Thoughts on Faith in Everyday Life. Uh, I think Thursday and Saturday this week, right? Right, Thursday night, 6.30 to 7.30 at the Barnes & Noble in Westlake, and then Saturday, 2 to 3 at the Barnes & Noble in Fairlawn. So that's Westlake, 6.30 to 7.30 on Thursday, and Fairlawn, 2 to 3 o'clock on Saturday. And the first two signings I had, one at the Warner Owl and the other one in Mentor, have been very, very good, So, uh, which has been gratifying to me because it's nice to see uh, people interested in the faith book and then it'll buy a lot of, you know, vintage Browns and Browns blues and um, Browns fans love to read about suffering. So I've got <laughs> plenty of those books. Yeah. Thank you. You gave me a copy of your new book on it's perfect size for stocking stuffer. So make sure you get out and get that. And again, that's December 14th and 16th. So, all right. So we're going to talk Browns here, Terry. Um, there's also some interesting stuff going on with the Cavs and guardians and there's a little bit of NCAA developments from last week that I know you wanted to get into, so we'll talk about that. We also have two more letters from fans from different parts of the country or the world t- telling us about why they are Cleveland sports fans and where they live. So we got a, we've got a good podcast here. So um, t- we were kind of at the game Sunday, Terry, and when the Browns moved to 8-5, and five, we were just kind of like, how are they doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, they're losing guys left and right. Uh, today is Tuesday. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Jedrick Wills had surgery today. He's out for the year now. Uh, what's made an impression on you about where the Browns are at right now heading into the home stretch? Well, a guy named Jim just sent me a long email de- delineating all the games that Stefanski cost them, and they should be at least 10-3. and three. He needed to run the ball more. And before we get into the fact that I think they've overachieved, isn't it interesting, and whether you're talking – you see this actually more in politics than sports, but there's some when the narrative gets set, it's really hard to break it. And it seems like somewhere like the middle of last year, uh, the narrative on Stefanski went from the coach of the year to, you know, they had a bad year with Baker to this guy just is, is over his head. He shouldn't be calling plays. Um, Etc. He he's always looking at it with his head on the play chart. He's doesn't have any emotion. Um, he wants to throw it too much. And I admit, I there's there's a there's the micro and the macro. The micro is yes, like for example in Seattle, he should have ran the ball instead of having PJ Walker 
throw it. And there's been other times when he's he gets hooked on um, his passing plays. He's kind of like a kid with a new toy or the kid that sees the new Barney cartoon and likes to watch it over and over again. And, and I get I, even as a writer, I have sort of certain themes that I could get hooked on. But then you have to look at what is the big picture of the head coach. The head coach is the head coach, and the record goes next to his name. And the record is eight and five. Never in Brown's history have they been had four quarterbacks win a game in a single season. He's done it, by the way, in 13 games. So that goes even back to when they were playing, you know, like 12 or 14 games, et cetera. Uh, secondly, you can credit all the coordinators, but at the very least, he greenlighted Andrew Barry to hire Jim Schwartz and bring in Bubba Ventral. And then he empowered them to do their job. He also, his very first hire, perhaps the most underrated one, was Bill Callahan. When he took over, they hired Callahan within about five minutes. I think he was in Washington, uh, was his last stop. And he was let go as interim coach or whatever. And they threw a ton of money at him. And then he put Callahan right next to his office. So part of being the head coach is getting a good coaching staff, changing the coaching staff when needed, and interacting with that coaching staff. So therefore, when you look at all of these factors, and I'm not ready to go on the East Coach of the Year or whatever, the guy's doing a really good job. Yeah, I was looking, Terry, because I think we brought this up a couple of weeks ago about Coach of the Year. And mm. if you look at guys who've done more with less, I, I mm -hmm. don't know that you can find anybody. But, like, that doesn't necessarily win you the award or get you in the running. So he, he probably won't win it. But the running of the ball thing, all right, that is what it is. But yeah. you look at you look at Sunday, Ethan Postich goes down in the first half and misses the rest of the game. They're down three offensive linemen of the five that they would usually have there yeah. and if you and the two tackles that they thought they would have were were backups anyway like um and then you watch what they did that wide open pass to david njoku down the left side like that does not happen by accident uh and that was scheme and i know jacksonville was was banged up in the defensive secondary but kevin stefanski's been doing some really good xing and xing and owing is that a, is that a verb <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it's it was effective the other day, and and the day and the David uh, the David Bell touchdown, yeah, the guy fell down, but like that had to be schemed open too, and I, I thought he I thought he did a really good job the other day. I really do. They ran it twenty eight times, um, which is more than I thought watching it. Uh, they could net couldn't get anything going. They had a, a, a twenty six yard run by Ford. So that meant the other 27 times they gained a grand total of 56 yards. And it's hard when you keep getting two yards of crack. Now, some of those are short yardage, Kareem Hunt, specialty situations where two yards were all they needed. Uh, but they had a 26-yard run from Ford. They had a nine-yard run from Hunt. And that was like their two longest runs. And so it was hard. Secondly... I feel a little different about Joe Flacco throwing the ball than P.J. Walker. I don't mean just that, but just in general. Um, and so that's dealing with it. And finally, he's had to develop different types of offenses as he's went along. I think right now at this stage of his career, he's got a pretty good file on different type of things to roll out for these quarterbacks. You go all the way back to uh, 
the best year case Keenum ever had. I know he's my favorite guy for backups, but was in Minnesota with Stefanski, which to this day, all right, the horse is out of the barn again. It is baffling to me in Baker's last year when he went 11-3 with Case Keenum. He watched Baker out there with the bad shoulder playing like garbage, and you don't just let him go and get healed or whatever and put this other guy in whom you knew and won games with. It was one of the strangest things. But we're not talking about that now. By the way, that also led to some of the very negative feelings towards Stefanski was that season. And then the following year, here came uh, Watson in, which I think the negative fallout on everybody in the organization uh, was tough. But a lot of it did stick to Stefanski, too. Because, you know, the owners, you don't see the owners. They come out once, speak in, in uh, training camp, and that's it. Maybe after the season. Um, so doesn't go, splash in their direction. And that's why I'm begging fans to look at the big picture. As you mentioned, you talk about they're down three starting tackles. Now, if they had Nick Chubb, even with the quarterback changes, I would say eight and five, yeah, that's pretty good. But you do have Chubb. And granted, uh, running back isn't everything. But he's something, something special. And so, but he doesn't have Nick Chubb. And he doesn't have the offensive lineman. And then, of course, Schwartz lately has had to really plug a lot of holes on defense. And if you look at the teams they beat, I delineated this in my uh, notes the other day, almost all of them have winning records. San Francisco has a winning record. Pittsburgh has a winning record. Indianapolis has a winning record. Jacksonville has a winning record. In other words, they are not just beating up on teams with two wins like when they beat um, Arizona. All right, so you got Baltimore. That's one with a winning record. And then you have Indianapolis is two. And you have the Bengals is three. And uh, the Steelers is four. And, you know, the... Basically, they got they've beaten five teams with winning records. So, yeah, unlike uh, the Miami Dolphins, who I don't think <laughs> all their wins have come yeah. against bad teams. So. Because the schedule, you know how they always say the schedule's not that hard. Of course, they always say that, and they never know what the schedule's really going to end up being. And as you mentioned, now uh, we were talking up there, the Bears are all of a sudden playing better. You know, that's not an that's not an easy game at all. Yeah, that's going to be tough Sunday. But so, you know, whether you've been a Kevin Stefanski fan or not, Terry, I, in terms of where he's at now and where this team is at now, it's it's really kind of an interesting, fun, different place where it's it's just like the, the defense makes a play and the fans are just showering them with, yeah. with love. And, and Stefanski's even getting – I think he's enjoying this ride. Like sometimes the most fun rides are the unexpected ones. And when Flacco came on board, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen Kevin Stefanski running down the sideline mm-hmm. during a touchdown, like saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like that was not what he usually does. And it's, it, there's kind of a really interesting, fun, I don't know, like unusual vibe going with the, the team, the fans. It's just, it's like a little roller coaster or something and they're And they're on the fun part of it. Usually there are two processes that are fun for coaches and GMs. One is the uh, building process. You have all these young guys coming together. Like, for example, the Cavs went from 22 wins to 44 wins to 51 wins. 
then all of a sudden the reality of the playoffs hit. But when you go from 22 to 44 to 51, that's fun, especially with the younger lineup. The other is what we're seeing this year, where a team was expected to be really good with this group of guys. Those group of guys are out for the most part, and you're basically running a rummage sale team, guys coming in off the street. You have to give Andrew Barry, by the way, credit for he and his coaching staff. You can argue he should have brought in Flacco earlier. That's correct. I believe that. But in Rick, nobody brought in Flacco. Flacco himself admitted there was no interest during training camp. He couldn't believe it. So at least they finally did that. And then you look at how they are playing uh, of late. And um, it's, it's exciting. I mean, I mean, he beat the Steelers with DTR. He beat Seattle and the Colts. Well, the one of those Colts wins goes to Deshaun. It shouldn't. Somehow with P.J. Walker. And now he knocked off Jacksonville with Flacco. So basically, Flacco was off of waivers or at home. P.J. Walker got cut by the Bears, picked up there. And, you know, and DTR was a kid. Yeah, they're eight and five. So yeah, man. and those um, guys, by the way, are responsible for four of those wins. All right. So um, moving to the defensive side of the ball, Terry Miles Garrett came out after the win the other day and basically went off on the officials, saying that you know I feel like I'm Shaquille O'Neal. I'm just because I'm big and powerful and and good. They're letting guys just hack me. It's like hack a shack. I, I can't get a call out there. It's ridiculous. You look if you look at my shoulder, it looks like a cat scratched. I think was what he said. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of that? And you've covered the NBA, and you know, like a lot of times, an NBA coach will put something out there after a game to so that it'll have effect later in the series. So that might be part of what Miles is doing here. But what did you think of what he said? And do you think it, it was smart? And also, he's an NBA owner. Never forget. That's true. Yeah. Part owner of the Cavaliers. Maybe he was right. sitting there with J.B. Bickerstaff and <laughs> Kobe Altman, and they came up with a strategy for him. This is what we do in our league. Um, you know, some people thought it was selfish or this or that. I've heard that. Um, I thought he was frustrated. And for the most part, he's right. They are they are clobbering him. If you isolate on it, and David, you I always defer to you on line play, but have you looked at it? I have not, but what we did was uh, Lance Reisland, our film analyst, first thing Monday morning, Lance and I were texting back and forth, and I'm like, hey, how, is this right? Like, And yeah. so Lance actually, he's going to have a post later in the week. Like I said, we're taping this on Tuesday late afternoon, but Lance will have a post later in the week. He looked at every one of Miles' 67 snaps, and he said, <laughs> he, he said Miles was held on 11 pass plays. And five of the 11 were egregious holds that were not called. Mm-hmm. And he said he also saw three more holds on running plays. So um, <laughs> he's he's working through not just the TV footage, but the all 22. But like 11, even if it's not 11, if some of them were marginal, like five of them being – that's five holding penalties, let's say, that weren't called and maybe three more on run plays. And it's a lot of yardage if you add that up. And so I'm really eager to see – you know, you got – the tape doesn't lie, and so Lance is going to have some video – uh, shots and, and whatever we can do to show like where the holes were. But that was a pretty high percent. It was higher than I thought it was going to be. And you can see why Miles kind of went off on the officials after that. It's got to be here, frustrating. And they will carry the NBA analogy one more time. In the NBA, 
what you do, you decide, we're going to play physical today. We're going to go out there. We're going to hold. We're going to grab. We're going to step on people's feet. Like, for example, a guy tries to go around a pick. You quickly grab his wrist just for a, even a half a second to delay him, all this. Let's see if they call it. And if they don't call it, you keep doing it, and you might try to keep pushing until they call it. Blake Hans, remember Blake Hans is the guy in that 2020 playoff game when they were getting all their linemen hurt, the Browns were in Pittsburgh, shows up in the huddle, and Baker looks at him and says, who are you? He goes, I'm Blake. <laughs> I'm your new tackle or guard. I forgot what he was playing. Well, anyway, I'm Blake suddenly was thrown in there, and he was just flat out what I saw tackling, you know, Miles Garrett, because you're Blake, you know, what are you going to do, cut you again? You've been cut 47 times, and they throw you out there with Miles Garrett. You might as well go after it. And there were no flags flying. Like, I'll do it again. So I see nothing wrong. If they get fined, okay, so what? Um, I'm sure Miles' mind, it can't get a whole lot worse. And he's probably right. And my guess is also, um, while Miles, you know, said his shoulder was feeling better, um, anybody's ever had shoulder injuries and suddenly I'm an expert on one having there, I've had a couple in my career of being a sports writer, um, including a rotator cuff and a separated shoulder. Um, they're very nagging and they, and it really, uh, seems you, you get better kind of quickly and then it seems to take forever to get really get better. And so I'm sure he's frustrated by that too. Well, he was working through the shoulder, and then he probably thought he played as well as he could on Sunday yeah. and then to have that happen. But, I, you know, I, what we were t- trying to replicate when Lance and I were talking is, like, I bet the Browns put a clip show together of, like, hey, here's the highlights of all the holds that happened and all the ones that weren't called. And they, you better believe they sent that to the league office on Monday when they got that together. So this is the kind of thing, like we were talking about, Terry, it might pay off down the stretch where – they're not going to throw a flag on every play, like you were saying with the NBA comparison. But like, even if he gets three or four of those a game, it's going to make a big difference. And but if so you I think call, that's the, he planted the seed for it for sure. If you, if you call too early, in other words, you call two of those quick early, like that's what certain NBA officials will do. Because I, um, I knew some of those guys back when I was covering, and when they knew this is a game where there was a fight or whatever, they went out there. It's kind of like. Uh, a policeman looking for jaywalking or a guy changing the lane without a, uh, um, a turn signal. Normally you let it go, but it's like, I want to like stop this now. And so let's, let's watch the next game. Let's see if miles gets a holding call early in the game. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch. So, and they're playing the Bears on Sunday at 1 o'clock at Cleveland Browns Stadium. So we will see how that goes. So, Terry, um, we got a couple more minutes here to talk Browns. I, I've been kind of saying to people the last couple of weeks that I, I have a theory that Martin Emerson has become the Browns' best cornerback. And this was even before Sunday. Uh, I thought, well, first, Greg Newsom. I, I think last week or the week before we were talking about how he was really off. I, I didn't think he was being real physical. He wasn't really didn't look engaged. But I thought he had a really nice game on Sunday, aside from the interception, right? Like he was better against the run. I thought, I thought he was more into the game, more physical in coverage, but is the eye test telling you that Martin Emerson might be the Browns best cornerback right now? Denzel Ward's been out injured. He's like the best, most reliable guy. What do you think? I think he's approaching Ward. That's what I think. Ward, Ward's really good. I mean, this is what this shows is, you know, Ward, um, I don't like everything pro football focus does, but they, you are able generally to isolate uh, a guy being covered by a 
a defensive back. It's one of the things I like to watch, even in those like seven on sevens or, a, you know, 11 on 11 in training camp or where they're not really hitting, but you could, you got to, there goes the receiver. There's a guy covering them. Uh, it gives you a pretty good idea. And Ward's really good. The nice thing is he's in the discussion of Denzel Ward. And next year, you may be correct because if he could stay more durable than Ward and he's more physical, uh, he may surpass him. But in the meantime, Andrew Barry, unless my mind is gone, I believe Emerson was a third-round pick. And you've got a guy in the third round that I think should make the Pro Bowl this year as a defensive back or a cornerback. I agree. I mean, he's yeah. been there for them. And I, I did check the PFF grades. And like you said, Terry, PFF isn't everything. But uh, Emerson is rated the 42nd best corner in the NFL right now by PFF. And Denzel Ward is 47th, five spots behind him, which I thought was interesting. I mean, there's a big snap discrepancy because of the injury, 684, 684 yeah. snaps for Emerson. And I have 471 for Denzel Ward. But uh, you know how you're talking about narratives, Terry. I, I'm not trying to create a narrative here. I'm just when I watch this guy every week, he's longer. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd rather I, I'd love having either of them on my team. Like, let's be honest, they're both what great I, players. The but, numbers that I like, David. I'm sorry. I'm all right, interrupting, but just because yeah. that 47 or 82, they do have a number you could break it into what the quarterback rating or how like they threw seven passes to the guy and he caught one for 12 yards that that interests me it's almost like the baseball pitcher versus hitter i really like those numbers and emmer and denzel is elite on those and uh, especially now with schwartz came in they're out of that quarter zone all the time uh it shows how good denzel is and um the last time i looked uh, emerson's is very good also those things to me are better than kind of their overall thing because then they're talking about how does he tackle and this and you can get little lost on the bigger picture because there's so much to look at but when you isolate uh, emerson is on uh, whatever their top receiver was um, in in that game i'm checking right now um you know emerson was on well, he wasn't covering Ingram, the tight end. That's who really hurt him. Whether it was Calvin Ridley, who only caught uh, four passes. I think it was on Ridley most of the time. Four passes out of 13 targets. Um, you know, the longest was for 16 yards. So, you know, that that's a – you're right. Your guy's good, though. Yeah, and we'll see where he's at the end of the season. Maybe we can pull some of those numbers, Terry, about you yeah. know com- opponent completion percentage uh, yes. allowed and things like that. Some some of the better metrics that are out there. So I just thought it was interesting, and, and like you said, PFF isn't everything, but it was kind of confirming a little bit of what I'm seeing anyway. So, all right, um, we got a quick minute here to wrap up the Browns segment. We do want to do the Terry weekly kicker update on Dustin Hopkins. Do you want to do the numbers? Or you want me to? You do the numbers. All right. 13 games, he's 31 of 34 on field goals, Terry. That's 91.2%. He has a long of 58. He's made 20 out of 22 extra points, and he is now 8 of 8 on 50 yarders or more. And that was a big one he made the other day, wasn't it? Yeah, 55. First of all, once in a while I get a thing of, like, I'm nervous about him on extra points. He's missed two. Two. I mean (laughs) – it's pretty hard. I don't care what it is to go 20 out of 22 right, whatever the thing is. Secondly, 
He is missed only three field goals, 31 out of 34. Thirdly, and I love kickers, and I like giving them a shot. When they lined up for that 55-yarder, I was nervous because it was colder. There was some wind, and it was a close game. And when you, I learned all this from Phil Dawson, by the way. Not that I, I know nothing. Everything I know about kicking came from Phil Dawson. It's a good source. And he said, when you start getting over 50 yards in November, December, when it's colder stadium, you have to kick it more like a line drive. And the problem there is you're asking for it to be blocked. And, of course, then on top of it, you're getting it blocked in that 40 to 50-yard area. All kinds of bad stuff happens. So, uh, or you said you kick under it too high, and it just doesn't get there. So either way, and then they get the ball on the 43-yard line or whatever it is. So um, it's uh, it was a gamble thing, and uh, he just drilled it. And this is a guy who's never kicked from 50 yards as well in his career like this. Now, Dawson also told me, if you look at his career, his, he started until he's in his 30s, was not that good from 50 out. He just learned how to do it. And so, um, thank God, they think about this. They found that an elite kicker for a seventh-round pick, basically the Chargers were getting rid of him. They pulled Joe Flacco you know, out of his backyard with his kids. And you get a chance to get this guy in the playoff with this guy. All right. Well, the Browns drive for the playoffs will continue on Sunday at one o'clock against the Bears. It's going to be a fascinating game. Justin Fields is starting to uh, get it going with the offense a little bit. And Luke Getze, remember Luke Getze from Akron is the Bears offensive coordinator. So a local tie there. So, all right, Terry, let's move. Uh, we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we are going to get into the Cavaliers a little bit and the Guardians. And we have a couple more fan letters. We'll get into all that and more when we get back on Terry's Talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back on Terry's Talking. Um, hey, Terry, let's get into the Cavaliers. They went on the road last night and lost. They're now 13-10. and 10. They lost to Orlando. It was 104-94. to 94. They're starting a road trip here. They're playing one of those road back-to-backs against the Celtics coming up here this week, which is which is always a, uh, it's a new development in the NBA. But, Terry, the numbers last night were kind of weird from that loss to Orlando. And I know Orlando's leading the division, but what did you think of the way the Cavs approached last night? A couple of things was the NBA's infatuation with three-pointers is basically, it's like the sugar addict with donuts. You know, a baker's dozen isn't enough. I want a case. You just can never have enough. And so here are the Cavs. They're not making threes. Uh, You look at um, Struess was 0 for 5. Niang was 0 for 5. Mitchell was two for 10. They took 85 shots. 40 of them were threes. They were nine of 40 from the field. And I'm watching this game, 
and I will give, by the way, Niang, who just couldn't get anything going. He he went to the rim like five times. He just couldn't get anything to go. Uh, he missed five, but at least he, he tried. But they were just hung up on taking threes, and it played into what Orlando wanted to do. And Donovan Mitchell, for example, was 6 of 18, 2 of 10 on threes. When it's not going well for Mitchell, go to the rim. He's also a good mid-range shooter, but he was just hung up on, on making the threes. I thought they played lazy basketball in terms of their shot selection. Just they they weren't making threes, and so I mean there was one play where Allen gets an offensive rebound. He's four feet from the basket. He throws to a coral in the corner. Of course, he bricks it. Dunk it. Two two is better than none. Remember that. Yes, three is better than two. Two is better than none. So you have to take advantage of it. Just like sometimes there were some fast breaks where they could have gone in and got a much easier shot and they settled for the three. I understand, like, if the shot's going well or whatever, but when you're really struggling to score, you need to see the ball go through the rim and into the net. So get some shots that do that. Draw some fouls. And that would have been, I don't know if JB was telling them to do that or not, but they certainly didn't follow it. And I don't know what Jared Allen was doing. I mean, it, it, it was... He's my guy usually, but it's like 15 minutes. He falls out with seven rebounds. It was just. Yeah. And you know, it's a long season, Terry. There's going to be clunkers like this, but I, 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 and I think, you know, I'm looking at what JB said after the game, like last year, the Cavs were built on defense, right. And the two big guys and, and getting the ball inside. And then Donovan Mitchell would have a big night or Darius Garland. And I, I know this year they're trying to play faster and shoot more threes. But I, I just wanted to read you these comments from JB after the game. It was like, hey, you know what? We couldn't beat Orlando. What's the big deal? Like, that was what I, if I was a Cavs fan, that's how I would take it. Here, mm-hmm. Here's the quotes. It was a heck of a basketball game. It was hard out there. It was just a lot of whistles and not a lot of rhythm. It got choppy. But I thought there were two good teams out there that competed, and they got the best of us tonight. I think it came down to shot making at the end of it. Give them a ton of credit. I thought this was two really good defensive teams battling it out. It was a good competitive game, but at the end of the day, the scoreboard ticks for a reason, and we just didn't make enough shots to win it. Like, this is a team that has aspirations of going deep into the playoffs, and this is Orlando, which shouldn't be better than the Cavs, but they have a better record, and they beat them last night. Like, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I'm trying to read between the lines, and I'm not sure what to take out of that post-game interview if I'm a Cavs fan. How did it hit you? It was a classic, well, they made the shots and we didn't make the shots, and that's just how it goes. But I would argue with, I don't think they used Kevin Porter Jr. at all in this game. I would have liked to have seen him come off the bench in there. Um, And I would have liked to have just have seen um, them try to go to the rim more often. You gave up, what is it, 104? That's that's good enough to win. You know, in a game with Orlando, maybe you want to even keep them under 100, which is hard to do in the NBA. But 104 is good enough. But when you were shooting, taking 85 shots, and 40 of them are threes. By the way, they were 21 to 45 on twos, which is like, you know, 47% or something. Um, it, it just is one of those. It's like, I thought they just settled. David, and that was what I would have been saying after the game. I understand the shots weren't going, but too often we settled 
for the easy shot. And I don't like that. So, but he was like on the Boston. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, again, this is Orlando. They're playing on the road and he's just like, oh, well, we couldn't get it done. But anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to read too much. And into it's one way, game. And it's and one remember, game, but I am a very, very big booster of bigger staff. I am in the minority there. Because I also think it's kind of, we're getting a little bit of Stefanski syndrome with that, with him. You know, a lot of nitpicking or whatever. Where I, you remember my argument, two things. One is the NBA is full of divas and drama. The Cavs have very little to none of that. Number two, they did play that game without Mobley, by the way. That's that's not easy. And Levert. Levert, now see, if I had Levert, I would have put, the, you know, put him in there and say, okay, bro, you go to the rim. You just go in there, shake it up. You know how sometimes he goes blowing into two guys, throw something up, see if you get a whistle, see if you get something going here. Get us going. Um, and so those were, those were factors. But overall, I thought, unless he said some of the things that I said in the huddle about, you know, we're being too lazy, taking bad shots. But see, I'd have brought that up after the game. I would have. It's not calling out one guy. It's calling out a whole – I mean, go get the box score. A whole bunch of guys. And so I, uh, I mean, when you're going looking at a backcourt where, you know, I'm looking here. So your your guards, because Struz play some guards too, especially when um, they're not playing Porter. So your three guards are a combined 128, 28 three attempts. And they made, how many did they make out of 28, David? Six. Six. Oh, that was a guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's once again, uh, it's not good, but that's like fifteen percent. So um, terrible, and that's that. That would have been my big, uh, my big thing. Yeah. Do Do you think JB last year they went fifty one games with that formula they use, and coming in this season, like the team says, hey, we're going to play faster and shoot more threes. Do you think JB is okay with that? Do you think he likes it, or do you rather be playing? last season's brand of ball. I think he'd rather play last season's brand of ball. I'd rather them. Maybe it's me. And I'm, I'm imprinting my feelings on it, but we've seen this too. Sometimes at the end of games, you know, Donovan's trying to do the whole thing to win it. Um, I like, I like the defensive ball. I know they did. They got blown out by the Knicks and things, but, they held the Knicks under 100 points. And I would have liked to have seen them play the Knicks with this current roster. Yeah, and it, like I said, Terry, this is only one game, and you're right, the playoffs are what matters, and being able to play both types of ball is what matters when you get there so you can adjust to your opponent mm-hmm. and the whole bit. But it's just – it's I'm always curious to see, like, during a season how – it's like, how are we doing? How are we doing? Teams are always asking themselves, how are we doing? Are we moving toward the goal? And I thought last night just – it didn't feel like a step in the right direction in a number of ways. And uh, I'm not trying to read, read between the lines, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting Meanwhile, thing. Meanwhile, they played it. some very good games recently against Miami right. and against Orlando at home um, and, and a few others. You had that one clinker against, um, oh, I forgot what team it was. Uh, but anyway, it was, a, it was a really bad game. and um, Oh, the Portland game. The Portland game, yeah. Right. But overall, they're playing pretty good ball. And that's where I say, let's look at the big picture. Uh, but it was an odd night, and I just hate box scores like that. They tell a very, they tell a story. I'm going to say it the third time, 
lazy decisions on offense. When your shots are not going from the outside, you just keep taking them anyway, as opposed to working harder to get better shots. One of the things I like about Kevin Porter or uh, uh, Porter uh, Jr. is that how he uh, gets in there and he works to get good shots. I mean, I'd have put him in there. Besides, you know, he's he's like the only guard in the NBA. Like his whole thing, I like to really rebound and, and block shots. I mean, he gets in, <laughs> he likes to get in there. And, you know, he's not a guy that uh, if he were a mechanic, he would not be the one that will take the car in the garage and hook it up to the computer system. He's no. I'm getting that hood up. I'm crawling underneath her, get get all the oil over me. I'm going to figure out what's wrong because I want to get my hands on this whole motor here and fix it. That's why with his driving and his medium shots and just his general peskiness, that would have been an ideal game for him. All right. Well, the Cavs do have two matchups against the, uh, the Celtics. First one is tonight on Tuesday at 730, and the second one is also in Boston, and that is Thursday at 730. And then they're back home for one, two, three, four, four games in a row, starting with Saturday against the Atlanta Hawks. So, yeah, we'll see how they come out against the Celtics and if they take the ball to the rack a little bit more, how they're going to approach it. So, um, all right, Terry, some guardians to talk about. A couple things here. I thought you had a really interesting column. I think since we podcasted last week, the guardians got the number one pick in the MLB draft. And you wrote a really interesting piece over the weekend about like what does that mean in baseball and how hard it is to make that jump from being a number one overall pick into the majors. Why don't you talk about that for a second? The feeling always is, you know, the number one pick in the other sports. How about hockey, David? That's more your sport because certainly NBA, NFL, you're expected to to contribute right away at the big league level. What about hockey? I know they have minors there. Yeah, the, usually as an 18-year-old coming out, it's very hard. You have to be a, like a once-every-10-years talent maybe or twice-every-10-years. The guy this year who's with the Blackhawks came out, and he's played, and he's their leading scorer, and he's 18. Yeah. <laughs> but that's I – mean, he's just – like I said, it's a once-in-10-years kind of player. So baseball I think is a lot different because you're getting these guys at different – some of them are high school guys, obviously. Some are college. Um, so I think it's probably a, maybe a little more more – of an occurrence, but not much, right? That's what you found. No, I mean, we looked at it, and um, uh, there's a guy named Crochet from the White Sox in 2020, went straight from uh, uh, the uh, straight from college to uh, the White Sox. And by, by the way, there's no minors that year. He pitched six innings, throws 104 miles an hour, 102, one of those guys. Uh, but then the following year, he, he, he started off very well in the bullpen, you know, Tommy John, out, shoulder. Then you you have really don't find too many other guys. Uh, the Angels tend to call them up quick. They play a little bit in the minors, and they call them up pretty fast. But for the most part, I remember, um, I can't recall what GM it is, so I won't throw a name to it, but the, with the, with Cleveland. It's not, it was not Antonetti. It's one of the previous ones. They had a... Um, a press conference with a couple of the guys that they had just signed. And he said, you know, you look at that and you see him in Cleveland now and you go, well, hope to see you in three or four years. That's if it goes well. And that's kind of how the, these are the high draft picks. So that's, that's just how it works. But you would rather have that than not because Cleveland has never had a number one pick. Um, you know, there's pressure to get it right. Um, the one thing I will say, I don't think it's on the radar. Don't take a high school pitcher. 
I hate high school pitchers high in the draft. I don't care if you take a middle or whatever. And I'll get, and I go, well, what about CC Sabathia? Fine. What about CC Sabathia? That was the last century. Uh, you can go and look at several of the number one picks that they took, or number two even. And people, what about Tristan McKenzie? I mean, McKenzie's had some success, but boy, he's battled a lot of arm problems too in the minors. And again, now I understand that also college players have it too. But I remember one scout said to me, they took a kid, by the way, in the second round a couple of years ago, Lenny Torres. Of course, he had the uh, Tommy John surgery. And one scout said to me, why don't they just draft him, give him the Tommy John surgery and get it over with? He goes, because that's often what happens with these high school kids. Um, so that's one thing I don't want them to do. Uh, there's a lot of fun guys to look at. And this will be a good time, you know, your major league pipeline, baseball America types. Uh, we could act like we know something. And, you know, you you, you never know on this, but uh, here's your shot to get a power hitter. There's somebody in this draft that's going to hit a lot of home runs. Well, maybe, you know, Joe Noga, our colleague, and Paul Hoynes, who uh, they both cover the Guardians, they had some uh, posts up last week looking at the top three guys that the Guardians mm-hmm. might consider with that number one pick. So maybe it is winter. Maybe we'll spend some time delving into those guys a little bit, and uh, we'll break some of that down I mean, the, on a future podcast. The last guy that so. come up, uh, came up pretty quick, Torkelson, uh, was picked by the uh, Tigers. And that might have been in 20, I forgot what, 20 or 19. Mm-hmm. And it's taken him a while. But he hit thirty some home runs last year. Now I struck out like one hundred and sixty times. But uh, and last season was his first, I think, in the big leagues, his first full season, if he, I remember. Yeah, he came up yeah. the year before. I think he, he might have been the twenty draft. So you have to live with some of that. But at least you look at that. Go, this guy's going to hit thirty to forty homers, and that's what you need. Somebody comes up. This guy's going to hit thirty to forty homers, um, and you 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 can live with them. Um, by the way, while the I'm I'm having a De Los Santos. I forgot the kid's first name that they just picked up in the minor league draft or the the Rule Five draft. Uh, actually, I was talking to somebody, and you know who's probably farther along than De, this De Los Santos is Jonathan Rodriguez. It's the same profile that the the Guardians have in the minors, only he's played some at AAA. But the big big guy, exit velocity. Oh, I'm sure where to play him. Gonna maybe play him in the outfield or whatever. But I'm like, okay, you know, I died on I died on the Oscar Gonzalez uh, uh, thing. I will say this: I got a good half season out of him. <laughs> what happens from here? But you know, you have to keep trying. The way you find power hitters is not to hold your whole lineup, but but you target a guy. You say, I'm going to give this guy a lot of opportunity to show what he could do. Just like I was pushing last year for Bo Naylor, I felt. After the first month of Mike Zanino and all his balls getting by him, I couldn't stand to watch it anymore. By the way, it made me long for Austin Hedges, who they signed. Yeah, so I, what did you think of that, Terry? Good I, move? I can't tell you who the source is, but he's very close to uh, Jose. And this source texted me and said, Jose is, quote, thrilled about having the hedge man back because they he helped kind of keep control of the clubhouse. They and and Jose believed that not having um, more veterans was a big problem last year. That he needed help. And remember, they brought in Cole Calhoun at the end, and 
but they needed a guy. Hedges was really respected. He he may be one of the worst major league hitters for a long career I have ever seen. I mean, he just swings hard in one spot. Doesn't matter where the ball is. And I remember Mike, the late Mike Keegan. I forgot what player we were talking about. I remember an old guy like Dave Kingman or one of these other guys that used to strike out a ton in the old days and hit a home run. He goes, yeah, he just swings at one, one hard at one spot. Once in a while, he runs into a fastball, and it's a good thing. <laughs> so that was kind of how it was for Hedges. But Hedges would get out there, and he will work those pitchers, and he will help Naylor. And all Naylor needed to do was play. We saw it. He just needed to play. You target this guy. He's got the right genes in him. He's got the right attitude. He learned Spanish in the offseason so he could communicate with catchers. He's got Sandy Alomar there. We saw way too much of Mike Zanino once that got going, and they kept you know, playing that. Remember, they started with three catchers and all. It was a joke. You know, If you were going to do that, you should have just kept Hedges. Yeah, which I, especially with a new manager coming in, Terry, a guy like yes. Austin Hedges can, can so, and they they gave up some offensive potential, I think, by trading uh, Christian Bethencourt they did. to the Marlins. But this is one of those things where it might pay off in better numbers for Bo Naylor, or like just cl- better clubhouse vibe and better better culture and all that stuff. So I, I think they, this was a pretty calculated move, as everything they do is. And you have to keep in mind, we didn't realize how important it was blocking balls in the dirt until Zanino couldn't do it. And some of those other guys weren't very good at it either. So I'd rather have that. Because that problem was, a guy walks, and they always say, well, they, like when uh, Karen Check was pitching, he walks and steals second. It's like a double. Well, a guy walks, and then a the ball is just bounced right in front of the plate. And Zanino, Zanino, who I think his hips were bad or something like that, he just couldn't get his body moved to block it. It's like a double. And I know this. One thing Hedge, you know, the, the old Hedges will do, he'll tackle that ball if he has to. But he's going to you know, do a really good job, and he helped the uh, – the Pittsburgh pitchers, you don't want a steady diet of him, but I like the idea of him behind Naylor. Yeah, playing every Sunday and maybe another game or two here and there. Yeah. So, And also yeah. sitting the kid down sometimes. So, yeah, the coaches could do it, but sometimes just that it's like, I'm not here to take your job, Bo. I'm here to help you be better. I mean, I, I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, so when you're working and remember, he's worked with some of these pitchers. So when you're working with this guy or that guy, you know, here's what we need to do. Well, there's a lot of good catchers around to help him between the manager and Sandy. And it's like Stephen Vogt and like five other guys that he can go to. So, Mm -hmm. um, all right, Terry, a little bit of sad news on the Guardians front. Um, Vic Davalio. He died, uh, I think the date was December 6th in, in Venezuela, following an emergency surgery. This is according to his daughter, Helga, who kind of put the news out. There's conflicting reports. He's either He was either 84 or 87 years old. Um, <laughs> baseball reference had one and other places had other. But he played five seasons in Cleveland, was a gold glover in 64. I think he was an all-star in 65. And then he went on to win the World Series with the Pirates, I think, in 71 and the A's in 74. But uh, you, you've you've seen – I think you were there. You said when, when he broke in with the Indians. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, 1963. I was eight. And uh, kind of the many – everybody has different eras of when they broke in, you know, the favorite sport, one that it was. Mine was the middle 60s. So I wrote a column on Davo Leo. And from players from that era, I have one guy to call. 
And it was Rocky Calavito. And so um, I was talking to Rocky. Oh, yeah, you know, little Vic. And, um, he He's listed at 5'7", 150. He goes, he was probably smaller. He goes, I'm probably about right. He goes, well, how old was he? I said, well, Rocky was either 84 or 87. He just started <laughs> laughing. He goes, yeah. And then we talked about how um, Latino players, especially back then they could do it, would change their ages, and you couldn't blame them. I mean, they would be – so in other words, he had – as Rocky mentioned, I didn't get into this at length. He said, so he, how old was he made the big leagues? He said, I said, well, he looked like he was 23. Uh, according to the age he picked. He says, well, otherwise he'd have been 26 or 27. They may not sign him. They may not bring him up. And, you know, your whole life changes when you come from Venezuela or something and you make the big leagues. Davalia was a remarkable athlete. I mean, he pitched a lot. He was signed as a pitcher. Remember, we're talking 5'7", 150, and we're lying about it. And this is a guy that pitched in the minors did fairly well. And then, you know, switched to become an outfitter or a hitter. Um, a lot of fans say this. I keep getting these emails. We got hit by a pitch, and he never was the same after that. Well, I looked all that up because I remember that narrative. He actually got hit by a pitch when he was a rookie. It broke his wrist, but it was his rookie year. And, you know, he he played forever. I mean, he was in his late 40s hitting 300 in the Venezuelan Winter League. You know, he went down to Mexico, and, like, when he was 40, he hit 396. He, you know, he was really, at that time, he was a, a pinch hitter. David, that was before the DH. Such a nationally slate bounce from team to team to do it. And also, uh, you know, Rocky and I were just talking. There's just not a whole lot of people left from that uh, that time. So uh, try fans of a certain era. You will like the column on, on Vic Davalio for tomorrow. Yeah, he was one of those guys where you just always wanted him on your team because he can deliver a single or whatever whenever you need it. I think I was watching small clips of him during the World Series against the Yankees, and he dropped a beautiful bunt down the yeah. third baseline in a clutch situation. You know, that was just the kind, like like I said, the kind of guy you'd really was, love, love to I have mean, on really, your team. He was a classic baseball player. He could pitch. Uh, he could bunt. He could steal bases. He was a good outfielder. And um, he could sit and then get in there and hit. Now, he used to have a swing where he stepped out. My dad would call it stepping in the bucket because uh, he would pull out all this. But here is the interesting thing. If you watch the hitters from Asia, Achuro and others, they have that swing. It's like, as, as Rocky said, a quote, his ass goes one way and the bat goes the other, and he slaps a pass to the left field. And so – it was that was Rocky said. I just busted up <laughs> laughing. He goes, he goes, that's what I remember. He goes, I don't know how he did it. I said, yeah, Rocky. Some of these guys do that now, and also because he was quicker, get the ball on the ground and things. So um, that was um, it was a fun column to write. You know, sad because there aren't too many players left. Rocky, by the way, is ninety years old. That is something, and hopefully, many more years to come. Um, he's, I know, I know you go to him a lot to talk to him, Terry, and you check in with him every once in a while and he's just a, a Cleveland legend. So, yeah. Um, all right, Terry, I know you wanted to get into this. We're running a little bit behind. I want to keep us moving here, but the, uh, NCAA, the new NCAA president, Charlie Baker sent a proposal last week out to division one schools and his proposal, he says that would, it would allow colleges to pay athletes directly instead of having it to be endorsements and things like that. Um, there would be money set aside. I think it was $30,000 for 
half, for every for half the athletes. And anyway, there'd be a pool of money that the bigger schools would be able to use. They would move into this upper tier, I guess I don't know what it would be called, but schools like Ohio State, Michigan, they would have this upper tier where they could manage the millions of dollars they bring in. And I guess one of the questions that we want to get into here is like, what does that mean for the smaller schools like Akron, Kent State, and others? Um, I know you have thoughts on this. We did have a story in this the other day that um, our OSU reporters, Nathan Baird and Stephen Means and Andrew Gillis, put together kind of explaining this. But I'm sure you have thoughts on this. You've covered the MAC for so long and covered Cleveland State for so long. How do you see this kind of affecting what they do? Well, a couple of things. Number one, it's about time. They should have a super division with the super schools doing whatever the heck they want. I don't care how they pay them or whatever they want to do. You know, Ohio State, all these. Fine. You guys go play your own game. The reason the NCAA is getting on this is because they were worried at one point that the big schools were going to say, the heck with the NCAA. You can see them reforming all these different conferences. We're out. We're going to pay our guys. So, okay, you go do your own thing. Secondly, though, David, I was looking. They talked about Power 5 schools. There are 79 of them. Do you really believe that all 79 of those schools – could handle an average of seven to twelve million dollars added to your budget to pay these guys. Half of them, maybe. Yes, yeah, maybe the other half not. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, for years on um, NPR, when I do my commentaries with Amanda Rabinowitz, uh, we used to talk about the Super Thirty or the Super Thirty Five, something like that, of schools because we didn't, you know, think that these lower levels. Pac-12 schools or maybe even, I mean, I don't even know if Rutgers or some of those schools would want to go to get into that. So, but whatever they do, good. Secondly, it is important to just for the, um, the there's 230 some schools that play, uh, there's 130 playing Division One football and excuse me, over 300 playing Division One basketball. It's important for, especially on the football end, for the other, say, 100 schools uh, to say, Get real, guys. You know, you've been playing these money games. Every year, Kent State aims to go out and pick up 5 to $6 million a year on these to, for, to pay for their budget for the 85 scholarships. They could have as many scholarships as Notre Dame or whatever. And just, look, you, you can still play them, but you're in a different bracket. And get real. I looked at Akron's and Kent's, their budgets, athletic budgets, they rank every year between 30 and 35 million. And you could, it's kind of how they hide how this is paid for, but they call it something like institutional support. And say, let's say it's 30 million. About 20 of it is, comes from, quote, institutional support. You know what Student that is? Student fees. Student you got fees. It. You yeah, have absolutely. It. This is ridiculous. Finally, how many guys do they dress for an NFL game each Sunday? Uh, 53, right? Or 53. That's correct. <laughs> How many scholarships in individual one football is Ken or Akron given out? 85. Okay. My soul is if the NFL could do it with 53, you can do it with 53. Save some money and you could take those 53 and break them up however you want. Like my friends that coach at division two and that, you know, I forgot whether it's 28 or whatever football scholarships it is. I think it's 58, maybe, for Division Two, 58 scholarships. Does that sound no, I right? I think that's that's the old one double A. Oh, okay. You know, whatever they call so it. So less for Division Two. Oh yeah, like Ashland is 28 or 32. I forgot. Wow. Which. Okay. Because I remember less um, when Leon's was coach in Ashland a couple of years ago. He showed me this breakdown, and he had it spread over like 60 some kids. You know, between the academics and all this. And he said, this is a way you can do this. And 
you know, guys at Kent, Akron, Toledo, you're not Notre Dame. You're not Ohio State. Now, you can play them once in a while. That's fine. But this will force them, I hope, to take a more realistic view of their athletic departments and what they're doing. And meanwhile, on the basketball end of it, fine, Duke and everybody go play their players. But, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with letting Akron or Kent or whoever wins the MAC and so on still get in the MAC in the NCAA tournament. And you can still have that try to knock them off. But I just hope that this really brings some clarity on how the football, the big boys should be able to basically do whatever the heck they want. And the rest of them get real. Yeah, and the, the, the way you were putting it, Terry, it's exactly what Akron's athletic director, Charles Guthrie, yeah. told um, our reporters the other day. He said the, the two important things are we want to have competitive balance in our league so that everybody's playing on the same playing field, and we, we want the opportunity to play for NCAA championships. Like, those are the two things that matter. And I think what you're saying is scaling back, getting ready. There's no reason some student who goes to, to Akron or Kent or CSU to study biology should have to kick in $400 for the 84th football scholarship, it's whatever it is. It's a lot more than that. It's closer to 700 to 1,000. Wow. It And and what you have dropping enrollment there. And then secondly, um, what you really need to do is say, um, you can still do, you know, small NIL deals. You know, the Akron car dealer or whatever. It, fine. You can still, nobody's saying that goes away. But uh, and see the big thing will be Title IX too on how on the on the big boys deal. How are they going to handle that with the female students and, and the athletes? And if I'm them, I want a piece of the action too. So there's a lot going on. But I just think this way you go back to um, kind of what business ought to be at those schools and um, take it from there. All right. Well, a lot of changes coming in 2024, and I'm sure those will be some of the discussions that are being had around various conferences so all right terry um before i forget we want to tell people about your newsletter it comes out every monday if you want to sign up it's free just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and click on the box to get terry's newsletter every week everything he writes will get will get sent to your inbox once a week and again it's free it takes like a minute to sign up um hey we do have a couple of emails from fans that we've been going through these as they came in we invited people for our hundredth episode you asked them to send in where they live and why they're a Cleveland sports fan. So we got two more this week. If you do have something you want to get into the podcast or tell us about or ask a question, just email us at sports at cleveland.com, and we will do our best to include it. So, all right, here's the first one, Terry. This first one is from Steve Fatica, and Steve says, Hey, Terry, I started to follow the Indians at age 13 in 1948 when I heard Jack Graney and Jimmy Dudley's voices on every radio everywhere. Boudreaux, Feller, Gordon, Hegan, great team. We all celebrated that year. Couldn't believe an even better team lost four straight in 1954. I started following the Browns in Jim Brown's second year after hearing how great he was. I even got to meet him a couple times. I live and die with them ever since. I've literally not missed one game since, either in person or on the air. I now live in Dolphins Dolphins Territory, Fort Myers, Florida, but there's a Browns flag in the front yard, and my (laughs) license plate frame reads, Cleveland Browns, Cavs, Indians. I read the PD sports pages every day. I attended your talk at the Bay Village Library a couple of years ago, and he says thanks, and that's from Steve Fatica. Thanks for that, Steve. That's cool. Yeah, man. So when he was 13, he must have been born in 1935. Yeah. That is really something. Way to go, Steve. Keep being a fan. So. 
Um, all right, Terry. And this last one is from Scott Goodman. And Scott says, hey, Terry, I grew up in Cleveland Heights and graduated from Heights High in 1973. I've lived in the greater Charlotte region the last 40 years. My dad's family were huge Cleveland Indians fans. Going to Indians and Browns games with my dad or my uncle and grandmother was the highlight during my childhood. As a teenager, my best friend was a finalist in the Bat Boy contest <laughs> two years in a row. He, he had a pass for two for general admission to every Tribe game our last two years in high school. We went to most Sunday games and any game when Gaylord Perry pitched. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> a good move. Listening to Terry Pluto brings back memories of walking under the municipal stadium stands and seeing the baseball field as the wonder of a different world or sitting in the upper deck for Browns games with plastic bags over my socks, <laughs> trying unsuccessfully to keep my feet from becoming numb. Listening and reading Terry Pluto's columns keeps me connected to the town I grew up in love. Thank you. And again, that's from Scott Goodman. Thanks for that, Scott. Really good stuff. The blessing of the internet, and there's a lot of it, is that uh, people not just all over the country, literally all over the world, can follow their teams. I would say close to 40% of not more emails I get are from people from out of state. Uh, and they just crave, uh, you know, being out there. Is it. It, it, it's so that's why when you see the Browns play on the road, you hear a lot of times those Cleveland fans at different places, especially on the West Coast. And thank God for that. I think the teams, like I mentioned, the Indians of the 60s, when you come into that, suddenly that gets pumped into your blood. And it's really hard to get rid of that, whatever that is. But did you ever put plastic bags on your feet at a cold Indians game in April or something. Did you ever pull that out, the plastic bag trick? <laughs> no, lots of hot chocolate. And uh, I remember for day games, my father and I, the sun would kind of go around the field, you know, as it, as it went along. And you could certainly pick your own section in most of the time because, you know, back then the, the tribe's big motto was good seats always available. And they were a lot of bad ones too. And you could just follow them around the stadium. And we used to do that to stay in the sun. <laughs> Oh, classic. All right, Terry, I think we're good. Anything else you want to get into real quick? We done? We are done. All right. Hey, don't forget, check out Terry's book or books. Well, the book, terrypludobook.com is the website yes. for your new faith book, right? And then terrypluto.com is where all your books are. I have right. that right? All right. Mm-hmm. Check that all out. Great holiday stocking stuffers. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will talk to you next week on Terry's Talking.